and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi, in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about four decades of animosity between Iran and the United States and how the national narratives of these two countries have been a major factor in their confrontation. We also take a look at key historical moments that have contributed to this cycle of confrontation and some of the missed opportunities for both sides to break out of this cycle. My guest today is John Tierman, the executive director of MIT's Center for International Studies. He has written and edited 15 books on international affairs, including most recently, Republics of Myth, National Narratives, and the U.S.-Iran Conflict, which we will talk about in this conversation. Before joining MIT, John was program director of the Social Science Research Council and executive director of the Winston Foundation for World Peace. John, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to have you. Let's uh, first talk about where we are today, basically the Biden administration's strategy on Iran, the policy that we've seen for the past year and a few months. Um, Obviously, it was one of candidate Biden's um, campaign promises that he would revive diplomacy with Iran and rejoin the JCPOA or the nuclear deal. And we haven't seen that happen yet. How do you assess the Biden administration's Iran policy so far from what you've seen? And what do you think is missing that they haven't yet joined the JCPOA? Well, what's remarkable about Biden is that he brought back a lot of the people who were in the Obama administration, his foreign policy team, uh, and a very capable uh, team negotiating this revival, uh, supposedly a revival of the uh, joint comprehensive plan on, of action, the nuclear deal. And they have not been able to get there. And I think that the reason they haven't gotten there is that they were, first of all, asking for too much uh, in a new deal. That is, that they wanted to include some peripheral issues, most prominently the Iran missile ballistic missile program. And that was just too much to try to include. They should have gone directly uh, and promptly for a restoration of the JCPOA, and and they didn't do that. Uh, Kind of puzzling because they knew there were presidential elections coming up in Iran just a few months after Biden became president, and that those elections were likely to usher in a new, more conservative era in Iranian governance, uh, and and Biden's team should have realized that they should go for the deal to be restored under the previous president Rouhani. So, you know, it was it was a failure of imagination, really. But a lot of people were talking about this at the time, uh, including me, and I think including you, uh, that we should go for it right away. It would have been less controversial than it would be now. Um, because as usual, the Republicans in the Senate and elsewhere will beat him up, so to speak, uh, regardless of what he does on this. Uh, he could have gotten uh, away with it uh, if he had done it right away. Mm-hmm. And how much of this, and I want to talk about some of these missed opportunities in the past 40 years, the history of U.S. and the Islamic Republic, but do you think this is going to be 
a missed opportunity? I mean, basically foreseeing the future or how this administration is moving forward with their own policy. We're at a stalemate with the nuclear talks. As you said, there's a hardline administration in Iran um, with even with a more hawkish stance towards the U.S. And the talks, the nuclear talks have sort of been paused do you think and the issue the current issue that's at stake is iran demanding the removal of the irgc the revolutionary guards from the u.s foreign terrorist organization do you think this is something that the biden administration is prepared and can do at all or will will this stalemate just continue it's been a peculiar stalemate in the last couple of weeks because we've heard virtually nothing coming from each government um, about the talks, which makes makes me think that there's probably some kind of back-channel conversation going on. That's what happened in 2015 with the first cut at this, at, at this agreement, that a, a great deal was accomplished in back-channel conversations with Bill Burns, uh, who at that time was an assistant secretary of state. The Iranians have a very, very strong incentive to go forward with this agreement. Uh, Approximately $100 billion of oil revenues have been frozen by the United States. And there are other sanctions on financial institutions, which are very harmful to the Iranian economy. And these will stay on if there's no agreement. These will stay on and they will probably be supplemented by Uh, other sanctions, since that's been the approach of the United States to leverage Iranian agreement to uh, any nuclear uh, accord. So the incentive is very strong. The incentive for the United States is also strong because they see an agreement as being a stabilization of, you know, what is still a very turbulent region uh, with a a good deal of violence going on and, and threats against other Persian Gulf states, and so on. So the incentives are there. The interests are there. So we have to ask, you know, what is preventing this from going forward? My feeling is, and, and this we, we've written about this in our book, is that there are some very deeply ingrained national narratives, we call them, that tend to constrain policymakers and give them excuses, basically, for not following their interests. Uh, and in this case, the, in, the, the narratives really clash. American narrative is very expansionist. The Iranian narrative is extremely suspicious of foreigners and outsiders who have tended to dominate Iran over its long history. And um, this is very hard to get over. So it's not at all certain that each country will see its interests in this nuclear deal as written. It's basically all written. And um, without that, uh, without them being able to grasp onto their own uh, interests, they may not get to a deal. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that book, um, The Republics of Myth, that you've uh, co-written with Hossein Banai and Malcolm Byrne. It just came out. I encourage our audience to get the book and read it. You talk about sort of a cold war that Iran and the U.S. have been locked in for 40 years or maybe even more um, from harsh rhetoric to hostage taking, crippling sanctions to targeted killings. Talk about this national narrative that you discuss in this book from each side and 
basically how you see them at clash with each other and preventing this relationship from moving forward from animosity to to any form of constructive diplomacy. We saw a brief period under the Obama administration, but then we sort of went back um, during the Trump years, and it seems like that trust has been lost. And um, with the Biden team, they're they're kind of back to square one. But talk about this national narrative uh, a bit more, maybe first from the U.S. side, and then we'll talk about the Iranian side. Sure. It. You know, each country has its own national narrative. It's a way of conveying a story about the country, about the people, the history. Very often it's kind of exaggerated and mythologized or, you know, depends on legends and and stories that are not, you know, entirely true. But, But it builds up a way of people seeing themselves, an identity. In the United States, it has really been for 400 years, the master narrative has been about the frontier, um, about how we expand, we European settler types expanded across the continent and did so uh, along the way uh, by really suppressing the what were considered savages, which of course were the indigenous tribes, violently suppressing them. Uh, and also reaping the bounty of the frontier. And this continued really until the end of the 19th century when the frontier on the continental United States was more or less uh, completely settled. And then it went overseas. Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, among many others, would talk about the American frontier being exported, so to speak. Uh, They had in mind China more than anywhere else, but as events turned out, it was uh, not just an attempt to bring the American frontier to to East Asia, but also to the Middle East, among other places. And this has been a very powerful set of ideas. You know, it, it goes everything from the sort of the popular uh, popular entertainment of cowboys and Indians uh, to a much deeper idea that the frontier was the place where we learned, you know, small d democracy and. I learned about egalitarianism, and this was the frontier was always a place of courage and and discovery and invention and so on. Very powerful ideas, which you see um, if you look for it, you really see it in popular culture still today. Mm-hmm. And it tends to frame how policymakers, among other elites, look at our role in the world. There's still the idea of you know sort of Christian. Uh, activism, bringing civilization to places that are uncivilized, subduing the savage, and so on. Uh, and it's it's a very powerful, as I say, it's a very powerful mindset. And we see it very clearly, I think, with respect to places like Iran, Iraq, and, and others in the Middle East. The Iranian narrative is a little bit different, of course, um, given their historical experience. It, it it has been formed in the same way. That is, it's formed through uh, lots of mythology and legends and stories that parents tell their children and things that are taught in schools and so on. But in Iran, it tends to be of two kinds. One is the religious uh, tale of Imam Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, and how he 
was martyred uh, by his enemies, betrayed and martyred uh, in his attempt to, to to be the successor of the of Muhammad. Uh, and this this sense of betrayal, betrayal by foreigners, uh, the violence that attended this uh, has become a very very powerful theme in Iranian life, in Shia uh, Islam, and, and, and how it is celebrated through holidays and so on. There's another mythology that is also still pretty powerful in Iran, and that has to do with it being an Aryan nation. It goes back to Cyrus the Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it encompasses the uh, ancient heroes of Persian people, uh, and that there's been one continuous um, narrative that uh, still has one thing in common with a religious narrative, and that is a distrust of foreigners, rejection of foreign influence, which is very powerful in both narratives. And so you see that there is a conflicting uh, set of narratives here. America expansionist across the entire world on its own terms, and Iran uh, rejecting that exact kind of expansion uh, interference in its own affairs. And of course, the actual history of U.S.-Iran relations going back to the overthrow of Mossadegh mm-hmm. is, um, is one in which, you know, which is now 70 years ago, is um, reinforces, I think, the narrative of both countries. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about some of these historical moments or incidents you mentioned the 1953 coup the overthrowing of the back premier Mohammad Mossadegh there's the hostage crisis uh, right after the Iran revolution and each side sort of has their own list of grievances against the other and also from a media perspective from my vantage point what I see on both sides and this is not just limited to one is that each tends to not exaggerate, but only look at their own grievances and not the other. But I want to ask you um, about some of these moments and their significance. If you can sort of talk about beyond just a coup in the hostage crisis, um, and you've mentioned some of these in your book, they're on Iraq war, the Khobar Towers. Talk about some of these um, historical moments and their significance in shaping sort of this ongoing antagonism er- and bringing us where we are today. Sure. Well, there, there are two kinds. Uh, one is the really traumatic uh, experiences, uh, but also the missed opportunities to improve the relationship, mm-hmm. uh, which is an important uh, subset, I guess, of events. Uh, the, the worst of it, of course, on both sides were the two that you mentioned, uh, the overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953, and then the hostage crisis uh, of 1978-79-80. The hostage crisis, of course, is the one that um, really was very traumatic for Americans. They'd never been humiliated like that before. Uh, A lot of Americans would not have been able to find Iran on a map before the hostages were taken. They knew vaguely about the Shah of Iran, but uh, this really brought Iran to the fore, and it was really the first experience that Americans had with what they considered to be, you know, radical Islam. Mm. This 
this trauma really has carried over for more than 40 years um, in distrust, obviously, but also a, a kind of a violent or a very nearly violent relationship. The overthrow of Mossadegh in, in 1953 for Iran was similar, although, of course, it's not exactly the same. The British and the American secret services uh, managed to force Mossadegh out of power, had a lot of help from other Iranians, mm-hmm. um, including a lot of clerics. Uh, but it was clearly a moment of trauma in that, again, referring back to the, to the national narrative, here you had an apparently popular prime minister uh, doing something that was, he deemed important and many Iranians also deemed important, which was the nationalization of their oil reserves. Uh, and, and he was being overthrown by these outside powers, uh, being accused of being too close to the Soviet Union and communism and so on. So you have these two signal events, but there have been others, of course. As you mentioned, the Iran-Iraq war was one of them. The United States supported Saddam Hussein from the get-go, uh, there's uh, some evidence that Carter administration uh, gave Saddam the green light to invade Iran in, in 1980. The United States supplied Saddam with, with financial credits, with technology, with real-time intelligence. You know, they kind of soft-pedaled the accusations of the use of, of chemical weapons by Saddam against Iran. So it's a very bitter memory and a very recent memory. Unlike Mossadegh, who was, as I said, is 70 years ago, this was uh, during the Islamic Republic period, and um, a lot of people died in that war, about 600,000 altogether, uh, many people in Iran still suffering from chemical weapons attacks. So that's a very traumatic event. And it goes on from there. You know, there were interference of the, of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. To some extent, the Revolutionary Guard uh, s- took sides in, in the emerging civil war in Iraq. And this became a very, a very powerful symbol for the United States, again, seeing Iran uh, as, a, as an evildoer, as President Bush might say. So, you know, you've had these events along the way, some of them quite violent, others, you know, more recently, violence uh, on a small scale, but nonetheless important, the assassination of nuclear scientists, the assassination of the Revolutionary Guard leader Soleimani, and, you know, the sanctions themselves are an act of violence. So it goes on. And it fulfills the expectations of the other. That's always the, the kind of irony of this, is that the United States sees Iran as being violent and savage and irrational. And some of their actions do appear that way. And Iran sees the United States as imperialistic, expansionist, interventionist. And, of course, the United States is all those things from time to time. So it makes it difficult to step out of those uh, out of those stereotypes uh, that the narratives have have uh, 
framed. Mm-hmm. So, but let's talk about um, some of the opportunities that eventually turn into missed opportunities because the issue of timing has also been very important in U.S.-Iran um, relations or lack of in the past 40 years. There have been brief or sometimes not so brief moments of opportunity when one side or the other or eventually both wanted to break out of this cycle that you just described, but then eventually the opportunity was missed. Talk about some of these moments um, and how essentially an opportunity became uh, a missed instance. Well, there's several of them, and they persist, really. Uh, I mean, I think that what's happening with the negotiations in Vienna now is is a is a big missed opportunity if indeed they don't get to an agreement. Uh, but previously, there have been several, uh, just going back to the uh, George H.W. Bush administration, mm-hmm. the elder Bush, you know, who had made a, a couple of very important gestures uh, toward some kind of conciliation. Uh, he mentioned it his inaugural address, uh, and there were other diplomatic uh, signals that they wanted to talk, and and they asked for Iran's help. This is when Rafsanjani was president. Uh, they wanted help with hostages in Lebanon. Rafsanjani did give them help, mm-hmm. uh, and then the Bush administration did not follow through. That was a pretty major one, because I think you had in power in both places uh, men who understood that diplomacy should uh, should be the rule of the day. Uh, then later there were uh, opportunities, deconfliction uh, during the Gulf War, uh, the the first Gulf War, Persian Desert Storm, I should say. Uh, there was a good deal of cooperation behind the scenes, and even during the Operation Iraqi Freedom, the 2003 invasion, and what happened afterwards, there were opportunities to talk to each other. There were some talks with each other that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, so there have been some some diplomatic gestures from time to time. You know, there was the walk in the woods between Zarif and, and uh, who then was the representative of the IRI to the to the Afghan talks after Afghanistan was, after the Taliban was defeated, 2001. Uh, he had a relationship with Ambassador Dobbins, who was leading the delegation from the United States. Uh, Dobbins has written extensively on this, that there were real opportunities to continue to talk, um, but the Bush administration turned that down. And then there's the famous or infamous depending on how you look at it, facts that supposedly came directly with the approval of the Supreme Leader in 2003, uh, hoping to strike a grand bargain sent to uh, the State Department, uh, but they didn't act upon it, and that opportunity uh, was lost. So there have been several of these along the way. They have been lost, I think, in part because, again, there's a lack of trust. I mean, we interviewed some of these people. And Bill Burns, of all people who, you know, has played a very positive role in the in the nuclear negotiations of seven years ago, you know, was the one to receive the facts. 
And they, he, he told us that, you know, they just didn't see it as being real. It was too grand. It was too, uh, it was too ambitious, given their, their ambitious toward peace, given their uh, history with Iran. And that was true of others in the bureaucracy who saw the facts. The same was true of, a, I guess I would say, a slight attempt for Bill Clinton to reach out to President Khatami, who they did finally see as a reformer, uh, but they had a hard time um, articulating a way of, of making that approach. And it, it was too feeble for Khatami to really act upon. And I think that was based, again, on expectations about how the, the Iranian mindset, the first approach, the first serious approach, was a letter that was uh, conveyed by Bruce Rydell and Martin Indyk, both in, in the government at that time, uh, written by Sandy Berger, who was the national security advisor. But it was filled with accusations about the bombing at Kobar Towers in 1997, which the FBI blamed on Iran, rather than a really a note of possible conciliation. So this goes on and on. You know, there were missed opportunities, but they were always subverted by expectations of, of mistrust or expectations of, you know, dishonesty and so on. And they've just never been able to get to a point where they could sit down and have a constructive uh, far-reaching conversation. Mm -hmm. John, you also have a book, uh, you edited a book um, with Abbas Maliki on U.S.-Iran misperceptions. This is before uh, the JCPOA was reached, the, the nuclear deal in the Obama time. But can you also talk about some of these misperceptions or the main ones on both sides? The U.S. has misperceptions about Iran, as you mentioned, some Iranians also have misperceptions about the U.S. Talk about some of some of the key ones and how that gets in the way, not just the national narrative, but this view of the other um, that has contributed to to the animosity of the past four decades. Well, they do come out of the narratives, but it, but I would just add that there is a you know there's a subset and an another narrative, if you will. Of the U.S.-Iran relations since the revolution in 1979, and that the you know the the relationship itself has a, a kind of story or a set of stories that each country has built up in their minds. So one of them is uh, on the American side, looking at Iran as you know a a malocracy, you know, uh, something run by irrational clerics beholden to this, um, you know, sort of strange religion. You know, we didn't have much experience with political Islam before 1979. Mm. And uh, this, this has become, uh, over the years, woven into the, the fabric of American, you know, the American cloth of, of foreign policy in, in the region as a whole, but with particular reference to Iran, that you have, you know, religiously crazed leaders who don't act on rational interests, but act on, you know, revenge or 
anger, uh, a sense of, uh, of having been manipulated by the West over many years, and that this makes it difficult for the United States to, you know, approach them rationally. Uh, on the other side, I think the, the Iranians quite properly have seen the United States as being interventionist, as being uh, trying to manipulate the country uh, going back to before the revolution. But even since then, you know, there's been just a constant barrage of, of sanctions, of political isolation, of economic uh, warfare, in a, in a sense, uh, that has been, you know, extremely damaging to Iran and is seen in Iran, I think, properly as a kind of imperialism. Uh, certainly as interference and unjustified interference. On the nuclear issue alone, you can see the United States has been much more active in trying to prevent Iran from weaponizing their nuclear cycle than they ever did with Pakistan or India, uh, who were outside the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, or, God knows, uh, Israel. So, you know, why is Iran treated differently? Well, my friend Hugh Gusterson would call it nuclear orientalism, uh, which I think is a is an apt phrase. Um, and so, long term trends between the two countries uh, since 1979, at least, keep feeding into each other, uh, mostly with high levels of distrust. And um, again, we see it today with the nuclear talks. Mm -hmm. And John, what about Israel? Because we. Obviously, Iran has rivalries with some of the U.S.'s Arab partners in the region, mainly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. But the sort of hostile relationship or animosity between Iran and Israel um, also contributes to the U.S.-Iran tensions. It's, I think it's a related sort of a triangle. How much do you think Iran's hostility or Iran and Israel's uh, tensions contribute to U.S.-Iran relations? I think it's a very major contributor. You know, sort of both sides are to blame in this, uh, in the sense that um, certainly Ahmadinejad's uh, statement, which I know some people think was mistranslated, but his statement about wiping Israel off the face of the earth has has been a you know repeated probably a million times in American political discourse um, to say nothing of Israeli discourse you know the the Iranian position is is about supporting the Palestinians and their rights and you know that's a legitimate standpoint unfortunately they've also backed it up with weapons and you know elements of low intensity conflict on the American side. You know, we don't have to belabor this too much. The, the pro-Israel lobby is extremely powerful in this country, and both parties basically bow to that. And the, uh, the Israel lobby is uh, adamant about punishing Iran, constraining it, overthrowing the regime, uh, if possible, and um, have supported Israeli hostile actions. A lot of the assassinations and sabotage in Iran has been carried out by Israel. So, uh, you know, it is, it's a very septic uh, relationship. And 
again, you know, this is one area where the United States at least should have taken the lead in in trying to prevent this from happening. Because, you know, as it happens, uh, Iran and Israel had a very good relationship for a long time. Now, most of this was pre-revolution, but some of it carried over until after the revolution. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, uh, we let that get away from us uh, to the extent that we could have controlled events uh, of that kind. But I think anything that we do, you will see the most vociferous, anything we do positively toward the relationship, the most vociferous reactions are going to come from APAC and other organizations that are um, pro-Israel, basically um, created to be pro-Israel. So, for example, if Biden did decide to uh, release the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization in order to get to a deal, um, you'd hear a, you know, a cacophony of condemnation of Biden's action, mainly coming from the pro-Israel lobby and pro-Israel members of Congress. Mm -hmm. And so I want to go back to the Obama era, despite everything that we talked about um, in the powerful forces on both sides in Tehran and Washington that have been pushing against uh, sort of a detente or engagement, the Obama administration did succeed in seizing one of those moments of opportunity and um, essentially they made a nuclear agreement. Talk about that time sort of if, and you know, I know you've explored this in the book as well, but what do you think contributed to that success? How was that team able to break out of that cycle, even momentarily, because I think we're sort of back in that cycle, but how do you see the change um, that happened in that time? Well, there's one thing that the United States can do very well, and that is arms control. We have a lot of experience with arms control with the Soviet Union, but also with other countries, uh, and a long history of it. Uh, places like my center here at MIT have specialized to some extent in arms control uh, and studying it. And this is true of dozens of, of universities and research organizations around the country and indeed in Europe as well uh, and elsewhere, Japan, uh, et cetera. So we really know how to do that, but it's a very technical approach. Mm-hmm. So other issues that beset a relationship like ours with Iran uh, are excluded during arms control negotiations, typically. Um, And this goes back really to our success uh, with arms control during the Cold War, the Soviet Union. We did the same thing with the Soviet Union. We were able to reach very far-reaching arms control agreements with the Soviet Union, even though we were ideologically very much at loggerheads. And in the case of the Soviet Union, of course, uh, it was a country that could wipe us off the face of the earth if they so chose. So, you know, we were dealing with very high stakes during that period. But we, we really got to know how to do this. And that's what happened during the Obama administration. We had people who knew how to do arms control. 
And the Iranians, uh, I think, to their credit, were able to reciprocate uh, and see it for what it was. Uh, and, of course, wanted the benefits of an arms control agreement, which were very substantial in prospect, which was the lifting of many sanctions, not all sanctions, but many of them. Uh, never really got to that for a variety of reasons, and then was completely subverted by Trump in 2018 when he pulled out of the deal. Um, so you did have this period of accommodation. I wouldn't call it detente exactly, exactly, but you did have a period where we were talking to each other at a very high level, foreign ministers and others. And I think that between John Kerry and Javad Zarif, um, they probably were talking beyond the arms control agreement, but quite unofficially. So you had uh, an arms control agreement, but you didn't really have anything else to go with it. You didn't have any movement toward normalization. You didn't have any official high-level discussion of things in the relationship that were nettlesome from our side, you know, human rights in Iran or relationship with Israel or what was going on in Syria from the Iranian side, you know, American dominance in the region and the uh, treatment of, uh, of Iran as this pariah state, uh, lack of respect and so on. You didn't have that. You just had the very narrow technical agreement, which was very positive and would be positive again if they can revive it. But it was a limited improvement in the relationship, which really would only last as long as the agreement itself lasted. Mm -hmm. And I know you also look at the Trump era. First of all, Donald Trump was adamant in sort of undoing um everything that the Obama team did or the, the nuclear deal. He talked about it in his presidential campaigns. Um, it was one of the hot topics among the Republicans, how to shred the deal, how to rip it up, when to do it. And he eventually came into office and did that. Although it was an interesting dynamic because at the same time, he was claiming that he wanted to have a better deal. He wanted to meet Iranian officials he did try in his own strange ways some form of public outreach to Iranian leaders. I guess first he wanted to meet the supreme leader the same way he did with North Korea. Then he tried to meet the Iranian president at the UN, um, which didn't happen. And then eventually we had reporting that he even invited Javad Zarif to the White House, the foreign minister, uh, to sort of meet with him. He was really looking for that meeting and Eventually, I don't know what kind of a deal, but uh, an alternative deal. But how much do you think his policy contributed to where we are, to sort of losing that little bit of trust that was built in the Obama era? And how much damage do you think the Trump policy did to, to that, to whatever started under Obama? Yeah. Well, I think that the... The bottom line with Trump was a kind of a chaotic approach to foreign policy, mm -hmm. generally, and that carried over to the relationship with Iran. If he wanted to have meetings with uh, the president of Iran at that time, Rani and and uh, Zarif and so on, pulling out of the nuclear deal was the wrong way to start that process going. 
And of course, he made many, many hostile comments about Iran, tweets mostly. It was foreign policy by tweet. And, you know, we list some of them in our book, um, but there were really quite a few, including threats against Iran. So, you know, it was, it was very chaotic as, as his nuclear diplomacy with North Korea was also very chaotic. You know, they would say, oh, they have a deal. They, they've, you know, they've uh, signed some kind of agreement when it was not an agreement at all. There's nothing that the North Koreans were going to comply with and so on. It just, it just wasn't a typical uh, step-by-step diplomatic approach. Same true of, you know, his approach to arms control and, uh, with Russia. A, a number of agreements fell by the wayside uh, during his administration because they just weren't paying attention, basically. So, you know, I, I don't really give much substance to whatever he said about meeting with the Supreme Leader or anything else of that sort. I think he would just, you know, he would tweet things or say things to the press it just came to mind in the spur of the moment. You know, he, he kept fashioning himself as a great deal maker, uh, which most evidence uh, suggests is untrue. And he wanted to, you know, he wanted to prove that somewhere. He wanted to have a triumph with Iran to overshadow Obama, too. I think that was a very important factor in everything he did with Iran. He was, you know, the the JCPOA was the was the crowning achievement in foreign policy of the Obama administration, and uh, that's one reason why Trump wanted to undermine it, and of course to undermine it, and then say he could do better. You know, he could make a better deal uh, if you just let him talk man to man to Iran's leaders. I think it was all nonsense, like most of his foreign policy was. Mm-hmm. And John, finally, if you wanted to, let's say, if you were giving advice to the administration, I know there's so many points of misperception and disagreement on both sides, but what would you see as common interests between Iran and the United States? Not that necessarily both sides would would see it that way, but what do you think... um, these two countries have in common or would be points of agreement or areas of interest that they can cooperate or sort of move towards a common goal um, that if you were to be advising each side, um, they should be looking at? Well, the irony of all this is that they have many common interests. Mm -hmm. They have common interest in stabilizing the region, helping to solve conflicts in Yemen and Syria, particularly, you know, oil politics, oil production, gas production, and see how important Iran could be to Europe now uh, in providing natural gas. The the two countries uh, could be very significant trading partners. I mean, Iran, you know, is, as you know very well, is, you know, a highly educated country, Economically, it could just take off if they didn't have the sanctions on them, and the United States could would benefit from that. Europe would our European allies would certainly benefit from that. And we need to to have some kind of process, a diplomatic process, 
that brings all the countries of the Persian Gulf together uh, to discuss their differences. I mean, this, this animosity between the Saudis in particular and Iran serves no purpose, really, as far as I can see. Uh, there are lots of, you know, theories about, you know, why Mohammed bin Salman is hostile to Iran and, and how the UAE has become involved in this and so on. And of course, a lot of turmoil still in Iraq. There needs to be a, a process in which these countries can talk to each other. And the United States needs to be involved in that, not necessarily as a convener, but as a, a kind of a guarantor of, uh, you know, of goodwill, uh, a signal that future relationships, including military relationships, uh, are going to depend on a good outcome, a legitimate, honest process in which progress can be made. Those are all very powerful interests. I mean, you know, the Middle East, Persian Gulf particularly, is still an extremely important region uh, to the rest of the world, even though, you know, I believe we should be reducing dramatically our dependence on oil, and so should Europe and Japan. Nevertheless, for a period of time, they're going to be very important uh, in that regard. And so we need to pay attention to that. And those are really the fundamental interests we have. And the fact that we, we can't act on those interests, neither country can act on their interests, is an indication, again, of how powerful these national narratives and other, you know, sort of cultural, political cultural impediments have been over the years and continue to be. Well, on that note, John, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you. That was John Tierman, Executive Director of MIT Center for International Studies. He's written and edited 15 books on international affairs, including most recently, The Republics of Myth, on National Narratives and the U.S.-Iran Conflict with Hossein Banai and Malcolm Byrne. And thank you for tuning into the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast and clicking on support. The Iran Podcast is produced by Joshua Barlow. Our theme music is by 127 Band and our graphic art is by Mina Jafari. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.